Good morning, church. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 16, verses 1 through 20. You remember in our last study, uh, Israel was in Elam. There were 12 streams. There were 70 palm trees. It was a place of abundance, and God had taken them there even after they had grumbled against him at the waters of Merah, which were poisonous, and God had miraculously purified them. And after that miracle, and even after their grumbling, he led them into that place of abundance. And they were surely very happy to be there, but that's not where they were to end up. God had the promised land for them. So Moses causes them to set out again. He, he pushes them to, to continue on. And this is a story for us. The New Testament tells us that all of these stories in the Old Testament were written for our instruction. Paul says that in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 10. Written for our instruction, written for our encouragement, written for our exhortation, written for warning. So yes, this is a physical journey to the promised land, but it's a spiritual journey too. We're told in the New Testament that Jesus is the one leading the people of Israel out of Egypt. Jesus is the one who feeds them the manna. He is the one who, who gives them water from the rock. Jesus is telling this story. Jesus is working as the mediator through Moses. So every time we look at these stories in the Old Testament... We are, it, we are to understand this was written for me. And I want you, brothers and sisters, as we look at this text, I want you to, to ready yourself. I want you to prepare yourself for just how bad the bad news is about our condition. I also want you to prepare yourself for just how good the good news is for our redemption. We begin reading in in verse 1 of Exodus chapter 16. They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, at evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, when the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat and in the morning bread to the full because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us. It's against the Lord. 
Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel say to them, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled or satisfied with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given to you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as you can eat. You shall each take an omer according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. But when they had measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over. And whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat, and Moses said to them, Let no one leave any of it till the morning. But they didn't listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, would you reveal yourself to us in this text that you would demonstrate to us as really as these people experienced it in that day that you are the one who blesses abundantly even in response to our sin. Oh, Lord Jesus, Please get a name for yourself as you reveal the gospel to us in this text from Exodus chapter 16. We pray it in the strong name of Christ and for his sake. And God's people said together, amen. The year was 1990, Super Bowl 25, Buffalo Bills facing the New York Giants. This story is, is told in an ESPN documentary on the four falls of Buffalo, meaning there are four losses of Super Bowl four years in a row. In 1990, it came down to this. The, it came down to a field goal. Scott Norwood, the Buffalo Bills had the ball, and Scott Norwood could win the game. He was the kicker for the Bills. He could win the game by kicking a 47-yard field goal. If he made it, they were the Super Bowl champs. If he missed it, well, he was the one who would be saddled with the loss, with the shame. Well, you already know from the title of the ESPN documentary what happened. Scott Norwood missed the field goal. He felt horrible, of course. 
In fact, 20 years later, even while, 20 years later when he was, he was trying to talk about it, he would still tear up. He said, he said I, I, I feel sorrowful, I guess, and, and disappointment in letting down the teammates that are there on the field of battle. I get choked up thinking about it, putting myself back in that situation. Well, that is what he would expect to feel as one who had that load, that burden on his back to win or lose the game and then to fail at it. What he did not expect is the way he would be welcomed by the Buffalo Bills fans when they returned by plane to Buffalo. Here's how he describes it. He said when he walked off the plane back into uh, the uh, the reception uh, arena where they were going to, to meet their fans. The fans, 30,000 of them, were chanting, We want Scott! We want Scott! He describes the scene this way. We got back to town and I didn't know what to expect. What I really wanted to do was just remain behind the scenes, but there was that chant that kept intensifying I wasn't expecting to be called to the front like that. I had to speak off the top of my mind and real quick. I think in a sense, that's when the truest feelings arise. The documentary pictures Scott with the mic in his hand telling the crowd this. I know that I have never felt more loved than I feel right now. I have never felt more loved than I feel right now. Why did Scott Norwood feel loved? Because he experienced grace. Mercy, we've learned to understand, is, is not receiving what you deserve. Just being spared of what you deserve. And when you don't receive what you deserve, the feeling is relief. It is relieving not to experience. Not to, not to receive what you deserve. But when you receive blessings that you do not deserve, that's endearing. That's grace. And that's the story of this passage, as it is the story of all the Scriptures, because all the Scriptures are centered on Jesus Christ. These people, the people of God, these Israelites, these grumbling Israelites, not only received mercy, they received grace. Now, it's going to be impossible for us to understand just how gracious this grace is unless we understand how, how evil this grumbling is. The, the Hebrew word translated grumbling is loon, L-U-N. Maybe there's a pun intended. And, and it's the, the first occurrence of that word is in chapter 15, verse 24, the passage that we studied last week when they grumbled or when they murmured against, against Moses. And, and Moses said it was the people who murmured there, the people who grumbled. Now he says it is the whole congregation. Maybe it was just representatives last time. Now it is systemic. And, and grumbling is not 
merely a quiet undercurrent of complaining, a mild dissatisfaction. This Hebrew word translated grumbling is open rebellion. If they could, and eventually they tried, they would stone Moses. They would kill him because they're so unhappy with their condition. This, this, condition, this, this sin of open rebellion is one that uh, deserves judgment, and God will eventually bring microbursts of judgment in Numbers chapter, chapters 11 and 14 and, and, and 16. That same word occurs, and God, God warns them. He doesn't give them all the judgment they deserve, but he, he gives them an indication that this is ultimately a damnable sin. It deserves judgment. In fact, in, in Numbers, when, when God does bring judgment on the people because they continue on in their grumbling, He sins against them. He sins against them. The, the same death angel that swept through Egypt, killing the firstborn. I mentioned uh, earlier that that passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 10, where Paul says all those stories in the Old Testament, they're written for our instruction and they're wor- written for warnings. And, and they're written to warn us to stay away from immorality. They're written to, 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 to warn us to stay away from greed. And they're written to warn us to stay away from grumbling, lest he sinned against us the destroyer. I said in the last study that, that, that uh, we suffer from redemptive amnesia, forgetting the good things that God does for us, and that it's a pathology that can only be cured by the gospel. And grumbling is a major symptom of redemptive amnesia. G- grumbling as a form of rebellion against God and against His provision is not only a pathological disease. The Bible says in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 25, that rebellion is a form of witchcraft. That to grumble against God's provision, to raise our fist against Him, and say, I do not like what, is, what, 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 what characterizes my, my present circumstances is a way of joining in league with the devil himself. It's disturbing. I want you to look at these, the characteristics of this, of this dangerous grumbling as they come out in the text. First of all, in verses 1 through 3, this grumbling is marked by dissatisfaction discontentment. Now, in the previous story, the, the Israelites, as they're, as they, as they're uh, going along and for three days without water, and, and they come on that, those waters at Merah, and, and it turned, they turn out to be poisonous, we can sort of understand why they would grumble. They were thirsty. They'd been without water for three days, and then they'd been thoroughly disappointed. But this is a different situation. This is even worse. It's not that they're without food. They're not starving. We know they can't be starving because in chapter 17, verse 3, we're told that they still have all of their flocks and all of their herds. 
They have lamb, they have beef, they have milk, they have cheese. The reason they're grumbling is not because they're starving. It's because, as the psalmist tells us in Psalm 78, verses 18 and 30, these were just not the foods they craved at the moment. They were bored with the menu. It's even worse than that because they, they, go, they go back and they, and they remember in a delusional fashion how, how well they had it in Egypt. They say that, oh, we wish we were back there where, where we, used to, we used to pull up our stools to the meat pots of Pharaoh and, and overflowing baskets of bread. They did not. They didn't have meat pots and overflowing baskets of bread. Pharaoh didn't welcome them to his table. They were delusional. What an insult to God to say back in Egypt, why, we really ate well there. And then they say, it's truly pathetic at the end of verse 3. They say, uh, you brought us out here in the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. They're not hungry. They're just dissatisfied. And they say, if we're not satisfied, if we don't get a different menu, well, we're going to starve to death. In fact, we wish we could die. We wish we could die back there in Egypt. I wish the Lord had just killed us back there rather than bring us out here and force us to eat nothing but lamb and beef and milk and cheese. It's offensive, isn't it? And again, it's hard to look in the mirror. Discontentment is, our churlish discontentment comes out like this. I wish, my, my, my parents are so much in my business, I wish they were dead or I was. I hate my job so much, I wish I were homeless. I'd rather live on the street than live in this house that's too small. I'd rather starve to death and continue to eat this stuff that I, I receive from a local minister or even what I have in my refrigerator. I'd rather, be, I'd, I'd rather not be married than to be married to this man or this woman. It's to raise our fist against God and to say, I wish that either I were dead or you, God, were dead. It's the same thing that the, that the, that the, that the, that the prodigal son said. In effect, he said, I, I wish you were dead so I could get my inheritance. And the father gives him the inheritance so he can finally do what he wants to do. Dissatisfaction is one characteristic. Another, dis, another characteristic of this kind of dangerous grumbling is displacement, what psychologists call displacement. Verses 6 through 8, it's taking your anger and your bitterness and not, not applying it to the, the, the person you're really angry with, but instead shifting it to someone else. Now, 
the, the people, as, as Moses explains in verses 6 through 8, he says, you're not really complaining against me. You're not grumbling against me. You're grumbling against the Lord. They don't deny that because it's true. Now, they're, they're afraid to grumble against God, as most of us are. Most of us are afraid to be angry with God. So we get angry with somebody else. We get angry with our, our pastor or our elders, or we get angry with our parents, or we get angry with our government leaders, or we get angry with our bosses. But we dare not get angry with God because we think he'll, we're afraid of him. Now, just as a side note, that, that God does allow us to get angry with him. He welcomes it if it means drawing us to himself. We can find examples of that in Habakkuk and Elijah and Jeremiah and, and the Psalms. God wants us to come to him with our, with our anger. But the, the people turn it on Moses. They blame their authorities. You may be doing the same. You're really angry with the, with the lot that God has given you, this, this present pandemic and all of the the, the, the terrible things that have come from it, or, or you're, you're angry with him about your health, or you're angry with him about your, your family situation, or your, your life situation, or your economic situation, but you're, you don't have the nerve to express that directly to God, so you take it out on, on other people. And the third characteristic of this dangerous grumbling is, is hoarding. Verse 20. God told them, I, I've given you enough manna, I've given you enough meat for every day, but I've given you only what you need. Now, on Friday night, I'll give you twice as much so that you don't have to gather it on the Sabbath day. But if you try to keep it, if you try to store it away, if you try to hoard it because you're just not sure you can trust me, and you, and you want to have a, a little bit of reserve, a bit of a savings account just in case I'm not true to my promise, then it's all going to go rancid. It's not going to... It's not going to work because God says from the beginning, he's testing them. He's training them. Not because he's setting them up for failure, but he's training them to trust him. Training them to come to his knee as a father daily and get what they, what they need, and what he would supply. But, but the, a grumbling heart is one that says, I'm not sure I can trust God. We try to store up. We try to store up our money, or we store up our, our comfort, or we, or we try to, 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 to uh, conserve our influence. When I mean, every gift that is given to us is intended to be given away. Blessings that are hoarded will always go rotten. Blessings from God are wired, are programmed to be given away. Only then do they prosper. And as long as you are hoarding, in whatever area you are hoarding because you're, you just are, you're just not sure you can trust the Lord, He's going to continue to test you in that, to train you, to pry your fingers away from it. Fourth characteristic of dangerous grumbling is one that you don't see here. It's thanklessness. I mean, you see it. You see it illustrated here. But what you do not see is anyone ever saying thank you to God. The Bible says that, that one of the characteristics of, of the unrighteous, Romans chapter 1, verse 21, 
the, the characteristic of, of those who are unrighteous, who are in rebellion against God, the characteristic of those who in their unrighteousness and wickedness elicit the, the, uh, the, the anger and the wrath of God are those who refuse to give thanks. That's who we are in our heart of hearts, isn't it? In our heart of hearts, in our natural state, we are grumblers who refuse to give thanks. And, and it makes us, it dehumanizes us, it, it makes us insane. It makes us loony, like the Hebrew word. I read this week about a man who was robbed in South Africa. He was being robbed. And, and he came in and he surprised the thieves. There were nine of them. Eight of them ran away. The other one, uh, somehow or another, the, the, the owner caught him and he, and he pushed him into the swimming pool. And the, and the robber couldn't swim and he was drowning. So the owner jumped in the pool and at personal risk saved the man, pulled him to the side, put him out. And uh, when he got his composure a little bit, the, the thief turned on the man and tried to kill him with a knife. And so the man just pushed him back in the pool. It's, so, it's, a, it's, an, it's an illustration of who we are. No matter how much we've been given, how much blessing we've received, our natural state, our natural condition is not to give thanks, but it is to complain at our next experience of difficulty. It's bad news. So how does God react to that? How would you write this story? If, if, if you didn't hear this story and you didn't have it written in front of you and I were just telling it to you and I said, so the people grumbled against the Lord and, 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 and God says, I have heard your grumbling. Therefore, now you fill in the rest of the blank. How would you fill it in? How would you write the rest of the story? I know how I'd write the story. I would say, and then George, who was God, destroyed them all. But our text is very different. God says in verse 4, The Lord said to Moses, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day. And they did so for the next 40 years. He says several times, because I've heard their grumbling, this is how I'm going to bless them. How does God answer dissatisfied, churlish children with extravagant blessings? Verses 4 to 6 and verse 12, God does not just give them bread sufficient to provide them the glucose they need for the energy that they will need on their trip. He gives them manna. Manna comes from the Hebrew word, uh, what, what is this? They didn't know what it was. They call it manna. And he gave them manna. And, and we're told that this is not just bread. This is bread that tastes as sweet as honey. And, and when they said, we're tired of lamb and beef, God gives them quail. 
this quail is a migratory bird that lived that uh, was common along the Mediterranean coast, and uh, it was considered a delicacy. He didn't just give them birds. He gave them birds considered to be a delicacy. This is the the way God is. This is the way Jesus, this is the God that Jesus came to reveal. Jesus blessed people extravagantly and he elicited from them extravagant responses of love. Remember when he was at the wedding at Cana and they ran out of wine and his mother said, we don't have any wine. He makes a wine and it's, it's more than they need. It's more than they could drink and it's better than the best stuff that they started with at the beginning. He didn't just give them five buck chuck. He gives them good, he gives them good wine and too much of it. And when they were hungry, he gave fed multiple thousands with little loaves and fishes and so much that they gathered basketfuls in response. And what kind of impact did that have on people? Remember when, when Zacchaeus w- was saved, he, he not only restored what he had stolen, he gave four times more. The woman who anointed his feet with the, with the alabaster vial, that, that precious vase, that, that family heirloom, she broke the whole thing and her, her, his disciples said, He's, she's wasting it. And the woman who came in and, and humiliated herself by weeping and washing his feet with her tears and, and drying with her hair, that woman Why did she do that? Because Jesus explained, one who has been forgiven much loves much. And how does God, a God of grace, answer people who displace their anger, who who really are angry with Him, but they're they're, they're too cowardly to express it to Him? He, He answers them with His presence. He comes in between his servants, those who are representing him, those, those authority figures, even if they're unbelievers who are intended to do them good. He comes in between them. He puts himself in between. Verses 9 through 11, God shows up in the cloud. He, and he, he is the glory of that cloud. And we'll learn in, in chapters 33 and 34 that This is a foreshadowing of chapters 33 and 34 that God's glory is his grace. When God's glory is revealed, it's his merciful nature. And so he puts himself here. Jesus identifies himself as this bread. He says, I was that manna. He, He identifies himself with the rock from which the water came. I was that water. I was that rock. And when you consume that bread, you are consuming me. And when when I told Moses to strike that rock with his staff, I was the one in that rock. I was the one being struck. When we express our anger against God, God is the one who instead of judging and destroying us is the one who makes himself the victim of his own wrath demonstrated in the person of Jesus Christ. I am the bread of God which has come down from heaven to give life to the world. He only gives life to us by our consuming him. 
our sins being placed on him and our taking his righteousness as our own. The God of grace meets our hoarding with daily bread. Verses 13 to 19, he says, I'm going to give you every day what you need. I want you to keep coming to me for it. It's the kind of father I am. I want you to come to me. And every day you will find your needs met. And furthermore, he says, I will satisfy you. It's the same word used up in verse 3 when they said that they, are, they were not satisfied. They were satisfied, they said, back in Egypt. They weren't satisfied. God says, I'm the only one who can satisfy you. Only Christ and the life he gives will truly satisfy. Is this, are we reading this text right? That God meets damnable grumbling with overwhelming grace? Yes, we are. This is exactly the kind of grace that, that Paul describes in Romans chapter 5. It's scandalous. He says, the gift is not like the trespass. For by the one trespass, Adam sinned and everybody else fell with him. But by the substitution of that last Adam of Christ comes grace upon grace, comes literally in Greek, hyper-grace, abundant grace, grace that is so great in comparison to our sin. In chapter 6, he says, I know what you're already saying. You're saying, you've gotten the point that I'm talking about how, God, how great God's grace is, and you're, you're to the point of saying, well, should we sin that grace might abound? Because if, if grace is this great in response to our sin, then maybe we should sin more that grace may abound. No, not that far, he says, but he takes us all the way up to the, to the, the chasm of licentiousness. Grace is that great. And that grace, that grace doesn't produce lawlessness, irresponsibility, thanklessness. That grace produces extravagant love. Extravagant love. I learned yesterday about a woman named Mary Johnson whose beloved son was named Loramian, Loramian Johnson, and 20 years old. When he was 20 years old, a 16-year-old named O'Shea Israel murdered him. O'Shea said by his own admission, O'Shea Israel said he was in a gang for no good reason. And he said, I robbed that dear woman of her son. He was 16 years old. He got 25 years. He served 17 years in prison. When he got out of prison, he's 33 years old. He got out of prison and Mary Johnson wanted to meet him. And she said, she looked him in the eye and she said, I want to see if you're the same man I wanted to hurt. I wanted to abuse when I was in the courtroom. I wanted to see if you're still that man who I thought at that day was an animal who deserved to be caged. Are you still that man? O'Shea Israel wept and asked her forgiveness and said every day he had lived with the guilt of killing her son. At the end of that encounter, she got up and hugged him. 
And she said, she's a Christian, she said, I felt all of that anger and hate go out of me. I, I realized the miracle that I loved that man. And, and, and Israel said he received that, he experienced a miracle too. It changed him. He's also a professing Christian. Together they've started a ministry called Death to Life where they go place to place and tell their story of how each of them had been brought from death, the death of, of anger and hatred, the death of, of violence, and they'd been brought to life and they tell their story. It's a picture of the gospel. This woman, she calls, she calls O'Shea her son and O'Shea calls her his, his second mom to picture the gospel. But it's an imperfect picture of the gospel. Because Mrs. Johnson hugged O'Shea Israel when she saw he was no longer that animal. When she saw that he was, he was repentant of what he had done. It's not a perfect illustration of the gospel. Because the Bible says God sent his son toward, he demonstrated his love for us in that while we were yet his enemies, he sent his son to die for us. It's not a perfect illustration of the gospel because God did not wait until we became repentant, became because, but until we became more lovable before he, he set his love on us, before he pursued us, before he, he gave his son for us. He gave his son for us, his blood and his body while we were yet his enemies. You, you can't illustrate that because there's no story like it anywhere else. It's what makes Christianity unique. And thank God we don't have to understand it perfectly. We don't have to illustrate it perfectly before we can benefit from it. We only need to receive it, which is what we do. It's what we demonstrate, what we practice, what we say in picture form in the Lord's Supper.